Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 1. John 1, we will be concentrating on verses 3, 4, and 5 today. However, just for context, we will start in John 1, verse 1, and we'll read to verse 5. So let's read this. John 1, starting in verse 1, the Word of God, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus being spoken of in a positive way is a very common thing. In fact, it's rare, even in our society today, to find people who don't speak well about Jesus. Of course, we know that once they're confronted with the words that Jesus actually said in Scripture, of course, that's what we know, that's when people get upset. But being the case that most people have no idea what Jesus has said in Scripture, for the most part, people speak very, very highly about him. What are some of the things that the world says about Jesus. Well, they say, Jesus was a great moral teacher. Or they'll say, Jesus was a tremendous example. Jesus was a very courageous man. So many in the world have no issue saying even that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. Just think of all the people out there who say that. The Mormons say Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ. The Unitarians say that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christ. The Muslims say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. The Druzites say that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christ. And at first glance, upon hearing that, that sounds maybe great, especially considering why it is that John wrote the Gospel of John. He tells us in John 20, verses 30 to 31, he says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So many have no issue saying, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah. So, is everyone correct in their understanding of what that means? And of course, the answer to that is no. Those false religions that I just mentioned, when they say Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, they mean something completely different than what we mean. Listen again to John in John 20, verse 31. He says, 
These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and at believing you may have life in his name. This is who Jesus is, the true biblical Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. He's the only one who can reconcile sinners to God. He is the only redeemer of God's elect. And when we say, as Christians, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, that is what we are acknowledging and affirming. So we mean something much, much different than what all those other people mean. You must believe in a correct Jesus, not a made-up Jesus. And it would actually be a disservice, and it would be evil of us to hear people say, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, all the while knowing that they reject everything else that the scriptures have to say about him. It would be a disservice, and it would be evil for us just to say, oh great, you think Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ, so do I, praise God. No, that would be evil for us to do. It would be evil for us to affirm a false Jesus. True belief in Jesus requires that we understand who Jesus actually is. And it is not enough to simply say the words, Jesus is the Christ. We must believe true things about him. Our text today, John 1, verses 3, 4, and 5, tells us some beautiful things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Tells us who the Lord Jesus is, that he's the foundation for life itself, that Jesus is the life and the light of the entire world. Here's what it says in verse 3. It says, referring to the Lord Jesus, it says, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Everything was made through the Lord Jesus Christ. It says here in the text, it says, all things. All things were made through him. He is the creator. The Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of everything. Here's what it says in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. It says, For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Jesus Christ is the creator of everything. The Bible tells us that there is only one creator and his name is Yahweh. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it is perfectly acceptable to say God the Father is the creator of everything. Perfectly acceptable to say God the Holy Spirit is the creator of everything. And it is certainly acceptable to say what our text is saying today that God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the creator of everything. Here's what God says in Isaiah 44, verse 24. He says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. This is who our creator is. His name is Yahweh. We see throughout the scriptures, all three members of the Godhead active in creation. Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the earth. 
We see God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and here we see Jesus. Jesus responsible for creating everything. All things were made through him. You see what's going on here? John is making the case. He's making the case. This is the biblical Christ. And something that must be stated about him is that he is the creator. He's the creator. This is something that we just affirm, but I would suggest that we don't nearly contemplate nearly as much about this as we should. That God is the creator of everything. That he simply spoke and everything came into being. The most brilliant minds who have ever existed, they could get together and they wouldn't even be able to create a small particle of dust. And yet God created everything. And as our text says here, God the Son, the Lord Jesus, created everything. Think of the earth and everything in it. Think of the creatures on earth and how they move and how they act and how they interact with one another. Think of our eyes and how incredible they are, all the intricacies behind the human eye. Consider for a second that the human eye transmits data at 10 million bits per second. And the Lord Jesus, he's the one who created our eyes to do that. Think of the vastness of the universe. Scientists estimate that there's somewhere between one and 10 trillion planets in the universe. And do you know who knows every single one of them by name? Do you know who could tell you all of the characteristics about every single one of those planets? Jesus can, because he's the one who created them. He has created everything, seen and unseen. And here is where we are at in our society today. You can either believe that, that Jesus is the creator of everything, or you can believe what the world says. And what does the world say? Well, the world says that the universe, this all came about by randomness. This is all random, that there's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. This is all just random. These are the same people who will tell you in this room that you were actually a fish, that you were once fish, that our ancestors were fish, and when we sit down to eat lunch and dinner, we're actually eating our ancestors. Time Magazine a few years ago published an article titled, We Are All Fish. PBS and NPR, they produced a documentary called Embrace Your Inner Fish. How would you like to embrace your inner fish today? It's just so ridiculous. So ridiculous to think that we're just protoplasm, bouncing into protoplasm. So ridiculous to think that there's no order to anything, no evil or no good. All it is is just random. It's absurd. Romans 1 verse 20, it says this. It says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You hear what God says there? God says this is obvious. This is common sense. The evidence that Yahweh is the creator of everything is so, so incredibly obvious. And the Bible also tells us that deep down, all men know this. 
they know this, and yet what do they do? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But the Bible tells us that they're without excuse. They can suppress the truth all they want, but they are without excuse. The Bible elsewhere affirms for us that Jesus is the creator of everything. It says this in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the one who upholds the universe. How can he do that? How can he uphold the universe? Well, it's because he's the one who created it. Now, when we say that God created everything, or when we say what our text is saying, that the Lord Jesus Christ created everything, does that then mean that he himself is created? No, it doesn't mean that. It would be illogical to say that. That would not be a logical thing to say. It would be like me standing up here and saying, guys, I won the race. And you say, oh, great. And I say, yeah, I came in 47th place. You would say that statement is not logical. And likewise, it's not logical to say that Jesus created everything, but he himself was created. Doesn't make any sense. When we say that Jesus created everything, we are affirming that he is uncreated. The text lays it out for us. There's no exception clause here in the text. It doesn't say all things were made through him except for the first thing that was made that was him. It doesn't say that. And this is something that we need to know in order to understand who Jesus is. He's not a created person. He's the uncreated creator. And as the uncreated creator, Jesus is omnipotent. He's omnipotent. It says all things were made through him. When we speak about Christ's omnipotence, we mean that Jesus is all-powerful, and thus he has unlimited authority and influence. He has ability to do whatever his will dictates. The Lord Jesus Christ is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He has all authority. We're going to see as we make our way through the Gospel of John, we're going to see just over and over Christ's omnipotence on full display. This is something you see all throughout the Gospels. Think of Mark 4, verses 37 to 41. It says this there. It says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he, referring to Jesus, he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be? that even the wind and the sea obey him. How could a man calm the sea? Well, a mere man couldn't, but the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he can and he did. 
Listen again to what happens in Mark 4, verse 41. It says that the disciples, they feared exceedingly. Why did they fear exceedingly? Well, it's because they understood. They understood this Jesus, he has authority. He has power. And that's because he is the uncreated one. He is the creator of all things. This is something that has been attacked really ever since Christ came in the flesh. The biblical truth that Jesus is uncreated has been attacked ever since Christ came here. One of the biggest heresies in the first few centuries of the church is a heresy known as Arianism. Arius, who was the founder of this demonic heresy, he was a bishop from Egypt, and he taught that Jesus was the first creation of God. So according to this man, Arius, Jesus was the first and highest of all created beings, that Jesus was the first one created, and then he was given powers to create, so he created God, the Holy Spirit, and then everything else after that. Their core belief was that Jesus is a created being. That was their core belief, and this heresy spread like wildfire in the third and fourth century. It actually spread because they went around singing songs with lyrics, such as, there was a time when the sun was not, and they just went around singing these songs, and this is how the heresy spread. So then what happened? Well, what happened was faithful men of God got together at the Council of Nicaea in response to Arius and in response to his horrible theology. These were men like Athanasius, who's a early church father, just a tremendous, tremendous Christian man. It's actually the reason why we have a New Testament canon, the 27 books of the New Testament. Other men were there, men like Nicholas. They were there at the Council of Nicaea. There's a famous story between Nicholas and Arius at the Council of Nicaea where Nicholas, he saw Arius and he just got up and punched him in the face because he was so upset over all the things that he was doing and saying. Scholars think that that story didn't happen, but it is interesting nonetheless. But at the Council of Nicaea, they rebuked and they countered Arius and his false doctrine. Here's what they said. Many of us are familiar with this. They said, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So where did those men at the Council of Nicaea, where did they go to refute Arianism? Well, they came to John 1, verse 3. We see John 1, verse 3, refuting Arianism without question. Second part of verse 3, it says, Without him, without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. Why would John bring this out? Because it seems like he's just kind of repeating himself. Well, he brings this out, number one, because it's true. But number two, to show that the Son is equal with and to the Father. Now, they're not equal in the sense that they're the same person. They're not the same person. God the Father and God the Son are two distinct 
persons. But he's bringing out the fact that Jesus, God the Son, isn't inferior to God the Father. He's telling us that they are equal. This is important that we know this because we can fall into the trap of affirming the doctrine of the Trinity, of saying, yeah, I understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God who exists in three persons, I understand that. But we could fall into the trap of thinking in our minds that God the Father is more God than God the Son, and God the Son is more God than God the Holy Spirit, but not as much God as God the Father or something like that. But it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible tells us that all three members of the Godhead are equal. Philippians 2, it says this about the Lord Jesus, about God the Son. It says that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Why wouldn't he consider it robbery to be equal with God? Well, because they're equal. God the Son, God the Father are equal. John here specifically highlighting that, specifically highlighting that the Son is equal to the Father. It goes on here, verse 4, and it says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. In him, in the Lord Jesus, was life. Jesus is the source of life. It reminds me of what our Confession of Faith says, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 2. It says, God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all-sufficient in himself. He does not need any creature. He doesn't need any creature. He doesn't need anything. We exist for him. This is why we were made. We were made to glorify God. We were made to know Christ. This is the reason why we were made, to glorify God and to know Jesus. It says, in him was life. What type of life is being referenced here? Well, there are some who say this is only talking about physical life. However, the majority of the people say this is talking about both physical and spiritual life. That yes, Jesus, he's the reason why people have physical life, no doubt about that. But he's also the reason why believers have spiritual and eternal life. He's the author of spiritual and eternal life. Christ, by his grace, what does he do? Well, he grants spiritual and eternal life to his people. That's what he does. Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says this. Christians, this is what we ought to be doing. We ought to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the originator of our faith because in him is life. He's the life giver. John 10, verse 10, Jesus says this. He says, I have come that they, those who are his, those who would come to saving faith in him. He says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. It's because of Jesus that eternal life is offered freely to all those who would repent of their sins and believe. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible that we can tell people that they can have life eternal, they can have eternal life, they can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus? 
Isn't it amazing that we can tell people the gospel? We could tell them what their biggest problem is, which is their sin. And we could tell them that they've sinned against a holy and perfect God. And because of that, they are justly under his judgment and wrath. But then we could tell them the good news of the gospel, that God the Father sent God the Son, the one who created all things. And he stepped into his own creation and he lived a righteous, perfect life. And then he went to a cross and on the cross, he bore the wrath of God for those who would come to saving faith in him. And then he died and rose victoriously from the dead, firming every single thing that he said would happen. And now you must come, repent, and believe, and you will be saved. What a tremendous message to tell others. What an incredible message to tell others. In this one, in this one who offers saving life, it says, in him was life which makes sense considering everything was made by him. Text goes on and it says, and the life was the light of men. The life was the light of men. In John 1 verse 1, we are told that Jesus is the word. He's the logos. And here we get another divine title for the Lord Jesus. He is called the life. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the life. He doesn't just contain life, but he literally is life. And the world, the world goes from vain philosophy to vain philosophy, from futile and pointless philosophy to futile and pointless philosophy, trying to figure out, trying to figure out what is life all about? What's the meaning? What's the logic behind life? Well, we know what it is. We know that the logic behind life is to know Christ. It's to know the one who is the life. There's a connection here, a connection between these first two names that are given to Jesus in the Gospel of John. So in verse one, again, we're told, Jesus is the Word. He's the Logos. And here, in verse 4, we're told that Jesus is the life. So what's the connection between the Word, the Logos, and the life? Well, the connection is that God's Word brings spiritual life. God's Word brings spiritual life. Christian, you know this. You know that when you are deep in God's Word, what happens? Your spiritual life is better. And in those seasons, when you aren't in God's word as you ought to be, you know that your spiritual life is suffering. And as Christians, we ought to desire to flourish in our spiritual lives, and we do that by constantly being in God's word. We're told here, told that he, Jesus, the life, we're also told that he was the light of men. He's the light of men. This is another divine title for Jesus. So we've been told that Jesus is the Lagos. Jesus is the life. And now we're told Jesus is the light. Meaning he illuminates. He illuminates the truth. It's what Jesus does. He, by his grace, he shows sinners their desperate need for him by illuminating, by turning on the light of the truth of God's word. 
Jesus is the light bearer. He illuminates the only way in order to be reconciled to God. What is it primarily that light does? Well, primarily, light reveals something. It reveals something. Last Sunday, around 1.30 a.m. or 2 a.m., one of those, May and I are asleep at the Parsonage and just, we wake up because there's this loud sound that happened downstairs. So I naturally think somebody's broken into the house, so I grab the hammer that's next to the bed and I start making my way through the Parsonage, about to unleash my wrath on whoever is in there. And as I was doing that, as I was making my way through the Parsonage, what was I doing while well, I was turning on the lights in each room that I went to, to reveal what was there? And it turns out nobody broke in. It was just a picture frame that just fell randomly in the middle of the night. But it was just natural to go and just to turn on the lights to reveal. It's almost like I was saying to myself, well, if there's evil in this place, I need the light to be turned on so I could see it, so it could be revealed to me. The prophet Isaiah, he prophesied that Christ would bring light to remove the darkness of captivity and slavery to sin. Here's what he said, Isaiah 9, 2, which we read earlier today. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Christians, that's us. We walked in the darkness, but now we've seen the light. The great light of Christ, the only one who can save us from our sins. We've been transformed by the light of Jesus. So many of us in here, so many of us in here, we were some of the worst of sinners. Some of the worst of sinners. Either we boasted in our sin, not even caring what even the world thought or anything like that, certainly not caring what God thought. Or what we did was we played the part, right? We put on a good act all the while knowing that we were held down by our sin, held down by the darkness, and in love with the darkness. But then what happened? Well, Christ, he saved us. And we've seen the great light. I always find it fascinating when I happen to run in to somebody that I know who isn't a Christian, and we happen to have a mutual acquaintance of somebody else who is a Christian, and so often, the person who isn't a believer will try to disparage the person who is a believer to me, gossiping about this person, saying things like, oh, they weren't like that, you know, a few years ago. Oh, they were really, really bad. And just want to say, say, yeah, like, what's your point? That has no bearing on anything. This person is a new creature. This person has been transformed by the light. So now they're different. And if you're here today and you are yet to be born again, meaning you have yet to come to saving faith in Jesus, you need to know that you haven't been transformed by the light. You need to know that Isaiah 9 verse 2, which we just read, that said that those who are walking in the darkness are now walking in the light. You need to know that that does not apply to you because you're still in the darkness. But it can apply to you. If you would repent and believe the gospel, if you would come and believe the gospel, the light will be turned on and you will see Jesus for who he truly is. Verse five, it says, 
It says, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There's a relationship here being presented, a relationship between the light and the darkness. What does this remind us of when it says the light shines in the darkness? Well, it reminds us of Genesis 1, verses 1 through 4. It says this there. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Just like how the darkness scampered when God said, let there be light, this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus shines into and through the darkness. Throughout our Bibles, the light is used to represent God and the things of God, while the darkness is used to represent Satan and the things of Satan. It's almost something we just know intuitively since birth, where we just automatically, since the time we're born, we associate the light with that which is good and right, and we associate the darkness with that which is evil. And something we know is that the darkness, the darkness stands opposed to the light. And we could take it one step further, and we could say that those who are in the dark those who haven't been born again, they stand opposed to the light. They stand opposed to the Lord Jesus. You say, well, is that a little bit too radical? Is it a little bit too radical to say that all those who are in the dark, all those who haven't been born again, that they stand opposed to Jesus? And the answer is no, it isn't. This is what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that deep down, the world resents Jesus and stands opposed to him. And the world can feign appreciation. The world can feign admiration and respect and esteem. They could say about Jesus all those things that we've already discussed. He was a tremendous example. He was a man of really good courage and things like that. But deep down, they stand opposed to him. Deep down, they resent him. Why? Well, Christian, you know that deep down, prior to God saving you, you also resented Jesus. And you know, only saved by his grace. But you could look back and you could say, well, I know that I resented Jesus before he saved me. And the reason that I did that was because Jesus, he exposed my sin. And this is why the world resents Jesus, because Jesus exposes their sin. And thus, they stand opposed to him. Something we need to know, though, when we speak like this, that although that that's true, although that is true that there are billions and billions and billions of people who stand opposed to Jesus, the good news is, is that they can't win in the fight against him. They can't win in the fight against him. Look at the last clause. The last clause in verse 5, it says, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Or as your footnote says, the darkness did not overcome it. The darkness did not overcome the light. Because the darkness can't. The darkness can't overcome or overtake the light. The darkness has no shot at beating the light. 
The darkness has no shot whatsoever of beating the Lord Jesus. They have a 0% chance of beating Jesus. Not even a puncher's chance of beating him. Are you aware what a puncher's chance is? If you ever watched boxing, they, two men are in the ring and one man is heavily favored in the fight and the announcers, they'll say, oh, well, this guy's gonna win, but this guy over here, he has a puncher's chance, right? If he could only land the, the perfect shot at the perfect time, then maybe he could knock this other guy out and then he'll win. Yeah, no, not so in this case. Not even a puncher's chance of winning. I like how Paul Washer, how he described this. He said, if all the created universe, angels and men, demons and devils, all turned against him to fight. So if you just had billions and billions and billions of people who hate and despise Jesus, along with Satan and his demons, and you have Jesus on this side, so everybody who stands opposed to Jesus over here, Jesus over there. Here's what Paul Washer says. He says, they'd have no more strength than if one of them, the weakest of them, stood alone against him. They have no shot whatsoever. The darkness cannot overcome or overtake the light. Christians, our Savior has won. He's victorious. He's victorious right now, and one day, he will ultimately and finally be victorious. Now, that day hasn't come yet, but it's coming. It's a sure, sure thing. Christ has won, and he will one day finish the battle. One day, Jesus will take all those forces of darkness, those who stand opposed to him, Satan and his demons, Jesus will take them, and he will throw them into the lake of fire forever. And it will be awesome to witness. It'll be awesome to witness Jesus taking Satan and all of his demons and just throwing them into the lake of fire. To witness Jesus overthrowing the forces of evil. And we will see it. We will have a front row seat to it. John writes these things so that we may believe and have faith in Jesus. And in order to have faith that is acceptable in the sight of God, we must believe correct things about the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And these first five verses, they bring us face to face with the reality of who Jesus is. He is God. He's the one who was in the beginning with God. He's the forever existent one. He's the creator of all things, the one who makes the darkness tremble. He is the Lagos, the life, and the light of the world. And he is the only one, the only one who can save us from our sin. That's the reality. The reality is Jesus, faith in Jesus, is the only way in which anybody can be reconciled to God. And those forces of darkness, they also can't escape the reality that the Lagos, the life, the light, that he's victorious and one day, he will ultimately and finally and conclusively be victorious. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you, God, just, just how incredible your son is. We thank you, God, for those of us in here who, who you save by your grace. We're, just, we're so thankful, God, for our salvation. God, we know that we don't deserve it. 
We know that we deserve to go to hell forever. And we're just in awe of your, your love for us, sending your son for us. God, we praise you for who you are, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We thank you so much for your word, how it encourages us, how it convicts us. We thank you, God, that your word is always pointing forward to your son and about your son, the Lord Jesus. God, I pray for anybody in this place right now who has not yet come to saving faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would be convicted of their sin. Pray that you would do a work in their heart right now, this day, that you would show them their need for the Lord Jesus, Father. So God, would you save those who don't know you? Would you do that this day? God, we thank you once again so much for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.